human emotion is a thing that can bring us together or tear us apart. Pain, anxiety, sadness, and the events that create them isolate and weaken us. But when we speak about these things together and truthfully, we find we relate to our humanity through our difficulties, and we realize we are not alone. In that, we find strength and the ability to not only change ourselves, but others, individuals, and even large groups. The psychology of resolving racism comes from that bridge of understanding. It comes from empathy. And in this way, we resolve racism, discrimination, and begin to stitch together what has been torn apart. Our ability to connect with and work better with each other. My name is Dr. Raymond Abdurrahman. I'm a clinical and consulting psychologist. I'm an executive coach and a professional speaker. Join me and my guests in the unvarnished and honest conversations about what make us different people. These conversations will change our thinking, our feelings, and ultimately the way we behave and engage with each other. These conversations are the missing piece to resolving diversity, equity, and inclusion issues. This is the Different People Podcast. Welcome back to the Different People Podcast. We are on episode eight and back again, very eagerly so, with Dr. Gregory Pennington. Welcome. My pleasure again. Yeah. Greg, I want to pick up exactly where we left off. Uh-huh. You talked about the room to be yourself. Yeah. Without getting caught up. Can I share one of the frustrations I have with you? Sure. And I think it's one with maybe a lot of people of color. I mean, certainly who I am was influenced and colored by my experiences. I, mm-hmm. um, I do have a pessimistic side, or I'd, I'd like to say pragmatic side, but but dealing with, with racism is certainly, like there's, I don't know, I think I'm funny. I think I'm lighthearted, but there's an intensity to me as well, too. Mm-hmm. But that intensity can easily get misinterpreted to fit with a stereotype of who I am. Yeah. yeah. You know, that makes me unsafe or, you know, and, but the intensity for me is around the passion that I feel like I carry and the need yeah. to make positive change, but is misinterpreted sometimes can be misinterpreted to be a different kind of person. Yeah. Is that, is that what you mean by the ability to be genuine and be who you are? Yeah, I think so. Yes. What I think is, is often a challenge is we see people through our, this is a literal statement, right? We yeah. see people through our own eyes. Yeah. Right. And we rarely see people or see anything that we haven't had a glimpse of before. Mm. So I start off with an assumption, a framework of, you know, this person in front of me. Mm. And then um, consciously and unconsciously, I use that as a reference point. That's why sometimes I might get, oh, oh, you went to Harvard? Mm. Right. So it's a factual statement, right? So why would that be a surprise? And even if some of that surprise is, um, I never met anyone from Harvard, period, or I have these high assumptions about Harvard, but see, even then, those lenses start saying, why is it so curious for me to have gone 
on the hiring, right? And but but the in, embedded in there again is the authenticity of how much time do I need? Do I end up spending trying to figure out what are you expecting from me? You know. So if I said, and you you gave the example, appreciate the example, the intensity. I'm fairly patient, right? I'm fairly conflict avoidant, you know, as a genuine kind of self-reflection. Sometimes people piss me off. Right? Yeah, right. But then I spend some time thinking that, do I have, literally, do I have permission in this moment to go off? Because my self-image is this patient one. And then it gets this noisy piece around, um, should I actually go off here? Even in this instance where, you know, as a black black person, I really genuinely am pissed off. But if I show that and ties into that image of don't be an angry black black man, and then women have their versions of that as well, mm-hmm. and then not be heard. So part of part of what I, you know I, I, I'm thinking is this, is Raymond, is that you know what's what's the second guessing that is to do. And someone told me that that was that was one definition that they had a white privilege, you know, not being encumbered by one dream is is what happened to me a consequence of my race, just to be unencumbered by that, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, the second guessing. I mean, you talking about that? Like I, I'm already second guessing. Like I, I describe myself with some intensity when I say that. Like now I'm second guessing. Like I'm like, how am I going to be perceived? Like, you know. Yeah. What are my clients going to think? I, I'm actually a really patient guy. Anybody who knows me is I am super patient, but I'm intense about wanting to make change and I'm yeah. passionate about how I do it. But now I always feel like I need to explain. I need to justify. Yeah. You know, yeah. Moment it yeah. came out of my mouth and I'm like, oh crap, what did I yeah. do? I just. Well, that's, and that's what I mean by that, that privilege. And I say a white privilege, but just take it. If that causes anybody resistance, just say privilege. Privilege to not be encumbered with second guessing, right? So, yeah. but the but the um, you know the noise, and I don't think of it as a burden. So I don't want anybody to hear it as oh that's that's oppressive that you have to go through that. Because what happens is that people in, who are underrepresented groups actually get more and more skilled at quickly processing that. So mm-hmm. even if we slow it down now and said my first reaction, my second reaction, my other, I mean, that falls in the category that a lot of people take a pride, a lot of pride in around emotional intelligence, right? Mm-hmm. I can read the audience real quickly, real effectively. Mm-hmm. And to the degree you've been successful and I've been successful, the truth is that we can process all that fairly quickly mm-hmm. and for the most part, come up with the most adaptable answer in, in that moment, right? The challenge is that, um, I mean, if I still run that kind of insight when other other people then along the way, I'm trying to go back to a question you said earlier or asked earlier. I'm I'm trying to quickly page through how is that person responding to an educated black person who's really pressing the point on them? What's his or her history about being, in their view, antagonized by someone that they don't think necessarily is capable or should be in this role? I mean, that those are the things that makes it much more complex around you know, being authentic. I'm trying to cover my intentions and I'm trying to anticipate yours as well. And the murkiness in there is that if it was just around, why are you being so intense, Raymond, now instead of just being passionate or just being patient? If that was it, then we can go through a different kind of conversation. If somewhere in there is like, geez, all you people are just the same. That's 
you know, that's the unspoken, sometimes unspoken part dynamics of the conversation that, you know, and if, because it's illogical, if we stay, if it stays undercover, we just keep batting heads back and forth. We don't make any progress because it's not a logical argument. There's an emotional piece under there that and has a historical precedence to antecedents to it as well. So we, it takes a huge amount of energy to uproot it in the moment because you got so much stuff behind us that, that has been justifying it. Do you second guess yourself? Oh, yeah, yeah. Now, now, what's interesting, just to clarify that some more, I don't, I rarely second guess myself in the sense of a, you know, mistake. Now, historically, if I go back and I said, yeah, there were these moments in high school and college and early career where I thought maybe I could have said more, should have said more. Yeah, second guessing in, in that regard. But I'll tell you this, at this ripe, ripe season age, uh, I start off by saying that, am I fundamentally pleased with where I am now, who I am now? Mm-hmm. And if that's true, the second guessing is not like could have, should have done something different. Mm-hmm. The second guessing is what did I take away from that? Okay. Right. Yeah, that was a moment when I think about it long distance, I could have done something different. I could have been more direct then. But what actually I got from that was how do I process? So if I'm learning from it, I'm not going back and trying to redo it. I guess um, the question is, do you find yourself second guessing that something you said might have made you sound like an angry black man? Or do you second guess that people might that you, oh, crap, I said that. And I, it's probably coming across our own way because of who I am. Yeah, no, it's a great, it's a, it's a, it's a really important question. And, and I would say, um, and this becomes personal kind of perspective to the degree I actually do second guess in the moment, like, why did he say that? What could possibly be going on? What are my options? You know, how do I want to play this? To the degree I'm actually doing that, that level of second guessing and hypothesizing and considering my options in the moment and then choosing how to play it out, then it actually works for me. Yeah. Right. Now, I have this group of, of early career Black students last year, MBA, going into corporate settings, and we were talking about what's the intent of, of what you said, how you said it, and when you said it, right? And so being underrepresented group in a, in a particular setting or in a particular exchange, if my intent, you know, is to make the point, I want to make it real clear to you that if you said, boy, you know, to a person of color in the United States, they might smack you for one, you know, it's going to conjure up. I mean, there's an educational piece and I want to make sure in this moment you leave with that understanding and I don't care if it hurts your feelings. So the the intent of the communication might say, hit them between the eyes. Mm. In that moment, if the intent is, uh, let me figure out whether this person is coming from a place of ignorance. They just don't know what they said or the implications of what they said. If they're coming from a point of a, uh, I don't know how to say this, approach this, do this. I mean, that's, that's a different intentionality of how I'm going to respond. Right. And for me is, you know, one of the ways I separate them out. If, if in the moment I need to prove something to you, I decide I need to prove something to you. I need to prove to you that this uh, one of four black students coming to this prestigious, you know, high school, really was the right choice, then I'm going to be real adamant about 
don't challenge what I said. I'm going to be more adamant about, you know, an intellectual demonstration, right? Yes. But I'm trying to prove in the moment. If I'm trying to improve, then I'm going to be a little bit more patient, a little bit more inquisitory, a little bit more um, trying to shape and read and second guess what was their motivation and what are my options. No, and, and I think I think we do that as professionals. And I, I think in many ways we have to put ourselves aside. Like I think when people like you and I do this work, you know, like it's, I feel it's different if I were to face very clear racism, you know, if I'm out shopping, you know, my reaction, my emotional reaction, not necessarily my physical reaction can feel different. Whereas yeah. if I'm doing this work, like it's not uncommon that the questions that you get asked, you know, are ones that speak to ignorance and sometimes really well-meaning, but other times not really well-meaning. Yeah. I, yeah. I've been properly attacked by people, you know, when I've been invited to do talks, there's people in the audience. So, but in that case, it's like you put yourself aside, you know, mm-hmm. you could, it's almost like, I mean, I don't even second guess in that case because it's like you have your professional front, you just, but you have to put your emotions aside to deal with being able to help that person make that change. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I, I mean, I understand what you're saying in terms of putting the emotions aside. I think there's a, I also think, and this is a little bit different take on some, some, some psychologists, some of my colleagues would, would um, argue that you're, you are, you always minimize yourself in the engagements as a psychologist. So I don't 100% believe that. And then the diversity space is one of those examples where I'm very conscious that I am, I am a data point for that person. Yes. Right. Yeah. And sometimes as a, as a data point, as a credential of what others are saying, mm. here's what others might be thinking. But I'm also very literally a data point of a, how might you have a conversation with another human being? How might you as a woman have a conversation with a male? How might you as a white person? But so I'm I'm a data point. And mm-hmm. so there, there are clearly some instances generally on psychology and executive coaching where I am choosing to say, you know, it's been my experience. And there's some instances where I'm also saying that, um, you know, what you just said confused me. Mm-hmm. Does that happen to you often? So I'm giving a real data point. But similarly around diversity, I'll give you a, a person's one. I'll give you my personal one. I was working with this woman who was talking about, well, was in watching this, in listening in on this conversation, black woman and white woman, black woman was saying that, you know, it's been my experience that, you know, the white, white women that I've worked for always second guess me, don't trust me. And, and the white woman, you know, in the other side of the conversation was saying, yeah, yeah, I understand, I understand. And, and then I thought, you know, hold pause for a moment. Are you a white woman? You know, mm-hmm. and are you black woman saying all white women, including her, you know, mm-hmm. not to minimize, you know, her experience, but again, to, to, to mm-hmm. f- figure out when can you bring in the real live, you know, data points and not, not to say, okay, quickly move away from all white women to all accept you, or you're not like all white women, but to use it as a data point. So yeah. what is it, what is it, what is it that I'm experiencing that might help you better understand how other people might go through this? And, but all that's based on this trust part. And that's where I think some of that authenticity of, uh, I want to be, as you and I said before, I want to be an easy pill to swallow. Yeah, digestible, you've said to me before. Yeah, digestible. I use digestible. Maybe the metaphor is much more like a pill, a right? Pill. <laughs> that's right. You know, because if you swallow it and then whatever the whatever the purpose of the appeal, it needs to be inside of you. 
before it starts doing its work, right? Yeah. So if you if you if you absorb me, then I'm gonna make your stomach grumble, gurgle a little bit. I'm gonna make you burp a little bit, and uh, and it's a different tactic that's much more genuine, authentic for me uh, in most instances, as opposed to hold up, hold up, hold up. Mm-hmm. You know, do you understand what you just said? You know, don't do. That. I want to. I want to get inside of you. Right. Yeah. To disrupt you. And this is very true. For me, I often talk about the anxiety people experience when, when they're non-racialized or when they have that privilege of making mistakes. Mm-hmm. And I always yeah. speak to that level of anxiety, like to recognize that. And if we can yeah. recognize that, then, you know, many times there are, as I said, there are times, and you and I both said, there are times where the racism is very overt, but many yeah. times it is the literal definition of ignorance. Yeah. But being able to recognize that humanity in people can allow that opportunity yeah. to be the easy pill to swallow. The, the challenge, and I think, I think what I'm trying to point out is that maybe for some people it comes easier, but other times it can come with a challenge, right? Yes. Easier for yeah. some people, harder for others. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I absolutely agree. And, and, you know, challenge, I mean, I, I would, you know, attach to that uh, the cost, right? Yeah. So go back again. I mean, it does cost me a certain amount of energy and it costs me a certain amount of emotion, mm. you know, to be easily digestible. Right. But sometimes you don't want to be that. Yeah. And so you said earlier, second guess. Yeah, there are these moments where it's like, okay, well, shit, why did I have to? Yeah, it's yeah. true. Why? Why do I have to be that patient? And, you know, and, and I, I had to put up with something in that moment uh, that in another setting I wouldn't put up with. And then the same thing we've been talking about, uh, the, the complexity of what we've been talking about, you know, there's always, go back to your term again, second guessing. What I wanted him to take out of this was that if we agree to have a reasonable conversation, you know, then there can be some insights out there. And I want you to understand even more uh, the complexity of being a black American person of color, you know, that's, that's the intention. Mm. And some, and then the reality is that some, someone on the other side of that conversation may actually be so resistant to getting there that they're working as hard or harder than I am to say, he's not like the rest of them. Yes. So they really did move from all people like you are in this category to, well, at least one of them isn't. Yeah. That's a cost, right? That is a cost. I, yeah, that's the cost that makes you makes me think at times. Okay, I'm might being too easy. And then the other cost, if someone in your community, your self-identified community, you know, had listened in on your conversation, How would, would they, they think that you represented them? Yeah. yeah. You know, well, or did you sell out to them? That's yeah. a oh. that's a real powerful cost thing to, to to calculate i i agree with you uh, i think the cost of being an individual who is a bridge is that we we leverage the privilege we have through our education or the work that we yeah. do to be able to and i think that privilege allows us to bear the cost of that easier yeah to be that easy pill to swallow but yeah. the other side as you said is is that are you representing yeah. you know, truly the way things actually are? And I think yeah. 
that balance is incredibly hard and it's an yeah. ongoing one, you know? Yeah. Cause you want right. to go home, you want to go home and you want to yeah. sleep well and yeah. where's yeah. home and what does that I, mean? I spoke to, in one of our first seasons of this, one of our guests was Nikki Davis, who's the director of diversity, equity, and inclusion for our national broadcasting corporation. And he often talks about, he's like, you know, he's like, I do my best, but I go home. You know, I go home to my black community, to my family, to my friends. And on the court, they'll say to me, why are you not fixing this? Do you yeah, see how they're yeah. talking about us? How come yeah. you haven't said anything yeah. in this really wonderful role? And yet you've not done anything. Yeah. And he talks about that conflict. He's like, it's a challenge. He's like, I'm doing yeah. the best I can. I truly yeah. am. Yeah. It's that, that's that unbalance of one, one, one stakeholder group has um, arguably extremely high expectations. Mm. The other one has relatively low expectations. Come yeah. in, do a little bit. Don't be totally disruptive. Come in and shake it up. And where are you? Like you're saying that in, interceder in there. What, what's, what's, the, what's the reality for you and the cost for you? Yeah, and the cost is high, I think, in my, in my opinion. I mean, I think the work gets done, and I think the privilege that we have kind of buffers that cost, but, but there's yeah. a cost. Well, I, I agree, and, and I do think, um, and we, I, we had a group in the uh, group of psychologists talking about the responsibility of privilege. Mm. And there's, there's, there's that part of what we're talking about, too, that if you are in a position of influence, you know, authority, distribution of resources and so forth, what's the leverage you can take for that? What's your responsibility for doing that? And, and even change in general, you know, how effective are you changing from the outside? you know, relative to changing from inside. And then as we're both saying, what's the cost for me to go inside? Yeah. You know, even yeah. if it means I can go in and be CEO. Uh, yeah. And if I go in to be CEO, that doesn't mean the stakeholders are going to allow me to change, you know, 180 degrees what we do. So yeah. where am I making the gains? And then one group is going to say, wait a minute, slow down. That's too much. Yeah. Another group is going to say, you haven't done enough, yeah. enough. For me, Greg, it's like at this ongoing assessment, right? Like when you work with an organization, you almost have to assess where they are in their growth. You know, it, yeah. it's like it, to be that easy pill to swallow. Like it's like, how hard do I push? What recommendations yeah. am I making? And it, and it is about an assessment of where an organization is at mm-hmm. and, and where their leaders are at sometimes because, and I think in some places we have to be loud and yeah. in other places, you know, we have to be strategic. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, you know, sometimes we talk about that as the, the band of tolerance or the rate of the absorption of change. What's the rate of absorption of change? Because I, I've talked with a, a client that's been a couple of weeks now and they, 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 the senior HR person thought I was inappropriately minimizing their progress because um, that yes. chief people officer really wanted to get uh, affirmations about what they had, how far they had come. And I thought, Oof, if you think I was rough on you, nice guy, Dr. P, you need to meet some of my other colleagues, right? <laughs> so, yeah, so what's, how do you celebrate some progress? But as we keep saying too, reading the tolerance for change and reading the rate of absorption. So in some settings, that really is, that really is substantial movement. Yeah. But I'm trying to listen in that instance to, what I said to the chief people officer, if you communicate it in a way like we have accomplished the goal we set out, then people will be dissatisfied. 
Mm-hmm. If you said, here's a landing spot on our way, on the way somewhere else, then there's a different reaction there. And I thought they were more in that first category. Ooh, you should have seen us last year. We were terrible. You know, <laughs> I right. got one. So, <laughs> gosh, that was rough. So, yeah. <laughs> I need a break now. So, <laughs> you know, one of the things that always, one of the questions that scares me the most, Greg, is, but are you hopeful? Can you see the change we've made? And, and it's true, there are some positive changes we see, but you know, there's a big worry that the moment we say, oh, we, we've done it, that we yeah. slip into a sense of complacency. Yeah. You know, like- yeah. Now I am hope. So simple answer. Yes, I'm hopeful. Yeah. Um, I'm not optimistic that it would ever be some, some version of utopia or paradise because that's yeah. varied, right? Yeah. So when I say hopeful, I think about um, what progress have we made? And if you were, if people are looking at this visually, I mean, the progress isn't a straight line. No. In the movement, it really is more as a circularity, like we can make a little progress, but then we recede a little bit, you know, so George Floyd wasn't the only one and wasn't a new person, you know, people who got educated about Tulsa, you know, simultaneously got ex- uh, educated about the red summer of 1919. So it wasn't just Tulsa. So, yeah, we made some progress. Mastered. So for me, the hopefulness is that we get we get a little higher mm-hmm. and we get a little further along. And then the other metaphorical visualization, Raymond, is that um, are we are we picking up some bounceability, mm-hmm. right? Bounceability. We're going to recede, so but can we bounce back a little bit further? Right. So it isn't. It's probably inevitable. We're going to back up, fall behind a little bit, and then we have to fight against ourselves and others who are saying that. See there, there was no real progress. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody we hired last year for senior level, you know, is gone. I mean, that's that's a that's an invitation to go back into the pity party and saying, you know, it was it was fake progress to start with. If there's something in that that uh, trend that gives us some bounceability, I mean, somebody left something behind or someone's taking a little bit more risk inside that organization and the conversation gets to be a little faster next time around. Then I think we're going to make some make some progress and it'll be over time. And it'll never be um, absent of all the complications that we've been talking about. Right. Absolutely. I value our discussion a great deal, Greg. Typically, I want to ask people, you know, to offer us, you know, a couple of points to take away. But I want to ask you something different. Uh-huh. I noticed that you moved after the apartheid protest some time ago. You pivoted from wanting to go into law into, and yeah. into ecology. And, yeah. you know, on the note of, of, of hope and change, to me, I think... I think the psychological work, the inner work is, is the hope and the change. Yeah. So I'm curious for you, why'd you move? Why'd you pivot from law to psychology? Yeah. Yeah. So the context of that is that, you know, as a, as a freshman at Harvard, excited about going to college, excited about Harvard's mm-hmm. brand and prominence, and then quickly educated about apartheid. This is 1971. So it was new for me. Mm-hmm. And then ex- and excited around, uh, this this uh, singularity of of the um, protests, which was to convince Harvard to divest its funds in Gulf oil, because mm-hmm. Gulf oil had such a huge presence in South Africa. Mm-hmm. So, and I thought, oh, I'm going, I'll be a lawyer one day, and I'll, you know, be kind of an activist lawyer, and you know, this is the kind of thing that would be really exciting. How do you change 
organizations and systems and so forth and change the world. That protest protest uh, lasted for a period of time, relatively short in, in my view, and then um, like a week or 10 days, something like that. And Harvard's argument was that we could have more influence and impact by using our shares to vote in golf than it was to divest the funds, right? And then I'm probably missing some details because memory is not perfect, but my experience and my recollection was that we said, okay, that makes a lot of sense. And then our our, uh, protests and our occupation of an administration building ended. And I thought, what does it take to change an institution? Harvard founded in the 1600s, its size, and that's a monolithic yeah. you know, uh, effort to get that size of an organization and institution to change. So personally, it was a real crystal clear moment for me that I don't know if I can deal with all the complexities of organization. I want to focus in on the people making those decisions. Yeah. So I went from you know, social change, uh, rights activist, lawyer, uh, tackling institutions to... Uh, if I can work with a singular leader yes. who has the power to influence those decisions, then that was going to be my um, sphere in, of, of influence. So from law to psychology. I, I 100% relate to that. And I think that's, <laughs> that's where we make change, you know, is that person-to-person interaction. Yeah. Thank you. The other true confession, Raymond, was yeah. that, you know, I knew – that there's a whole lot of detailed content I was going to have to learn in law school. <laughs> and I thought I can be real thematic, you know, with, <laughs> with psychology. So right. <laughs> it fit my thinking style and my study style and, and so forth. So uh, it was a practical move as well as a philosophical, philosophical personal mission. Move, so. Well, the world is better for you being a psychologist, I think. So, and to have uh, you. Thank you. Thank you for saying it. I, I think of it as um, uh, giving and getting. So I'm, I, I learn as I go, and hopefully I'm sharing as I go, too. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for this person-to-person interaction. I, yeah. I, I really did appreciate it, and I've learned and grown as a result of it. Thank yeah. you very much, Craig. My pleasure. We got to do this again. Absolutely, absolutely. All right. Thank, thank you all you for listening in to the Different People podcast. Uh, join us soon for Episode 9. Thank you for sitting with us through this conversation. The Different People podcast was made possible through collaborations with committed and talented individuals. This includes post-production by JonathanLay.net, graphics and web design by Mukhtar Jundi of MJ Designs, and of course, the wonderful guests that make these conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion possible. If you'd like to learn more about myself, my work as an executive coach, professional speaker, and an expert, on diversity, equity, and inclusion, visit leadwithdiversity.com.